and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 150. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have another guest, Aisha Siddiqui. Thanks, Kip. It's really fun to be here. And it's great to have you here. As the audience can probably guess, based on the title of this episode, we're going to be discussing the Wonder Woman film that came out a few weeks ago. And a few disclaimers, we are going to be spoiling parts of the film, so if you're interested in the plot, please consider watching it before listening to this conversation. Another note I'd like to make is that while Gal Gadot's identity as an Israeli actress and individual is political and worthy of discussion, we aren't going to be unpacking that topic in this particular discussion, and I just wanted to bring it up so that listeners know we're not unaware of it, but simply choosing to discuss other elements of the film and of the mythos of Wonder Woman. And so, Aisha, I'd really love to know, since you and I watched the film together with other friends of ours, where you'd like this discussion to begin. So let's start with the meatiest part, the I love you, which for me personally was a huge disappointment. The movie's two hours and 21 minutes long. We spent, I don't know, maybe two hours worth seeing Diana develop, seeing her independence, her resilience, her strength, her devotion to her values. And then at the very end, what do we get? We get Diana only compelled to her full potential after she realizes the quote unquote power of love after a man professes his romantic love to her. I think love is powerful, and I think love can move us to do wonderful things for the world. But A, does it have to be romantic love? B, why does Diana need that at the very end? What about her character did not already inherently understand love writ large? And then C, come on, just spare me. Well, I have a similar read of that moment, and I was really torn because initially when we're shown that exchange, I was intrigued that after the concussive blast, the pair exchange words before Trevor, the spy played by Chris Pine, dashes off to his fatal flight at the end of the film. But then we see a flashback where the persistent ringing after that concussive blast is removed. And we can hear that Steve Trevor says, I love you. And I preferred the interpretation allowed by that concussive ringing because all we know, I think, as an audience after seeing that for the first time is that a significant exchange has occurred. And it does not have to be centered in romantic love, love of any kind, or really anything except dramatic significance. And I feel that many parts of this film, of which I'm critical, play into certain Hollywood tropes. And I absolutely recognize that in a market, there are reasons that the film industry may forever be tied to what will earn it money. But also as a piece of art, I don't think, perhaps like you, that that was necessary. And I do think in many ways it reduces the nuance of some of these interactions and relationships. And Chris Pine's character, Steve Trevor, is particularly interesting because he acts as a vehicle of sorts for Diana's growth, although, as you had pointed out, she's absolutely independent. And what I love about Gal Gadot's performance is that I took away an independent person who was already capable, had a great deal of knowledge about the world. For example, her earlier line that men may be necessary for reproduction, but sexually speaking, they're not necessary for pleasure, which shows someone who has a great understanding of the world and an ownership of sexuality that is not diluted or necessarily altered by Steve Trevor's introduction, interestingly, by plane into her island home. And I also think it's worth noting that Trevor's departure from the film, where he dies sacrificing himself, is in a plane. And I'm really intrigued symbolically by the fact that he enters and leaves 
biplane, by this somewhat otherworldly device that allows human beings the ability to fly, almost in imitation of that superheroic ability. So back to what you said about that concussive blast. You said that it was a really important conversation that we were missing out on and that is suddenly revealed. And you use that term revealed in a sense as if the audience was waiting to hear. But I had a different watching experience. So Diana, she's there, her head's ringing, she's trying to orient herself again, and you can't hear any audio, as you noted. I came away with it with, oh, yeah, she's in a big fight. Her ears are ringing. And he's saying something, but it doesn't need to be said. And whatever is happening between them right now, I'm experiencing through Diana. And I am not a third-party watcher anymore. I'm with her in this moment. And so it didn't really matter to me that the dialogue was absent, because by this point in the film, I'm invested in Diana, and I want to see the world through her as much as I can. So when we finally do hear that audio, when it's a flashback, like you said, A, I was disoriented because I'm like, whoa, we're back to this? Okay, fine, I'll roll with it. And then B, Steve Trevor says, I love you. But he also says another line, Kip, that I know you like, which is, I can save the day, but you can save the world. And then he flies away to save the day. And in that moment, my heart sank because I had believed in Diana and I had hoped for her. And when Steve Trevor says, I love you, I knew we were taking a pivot to this is going to be important. And then the very next scene is her mustering all her courage, her godlike power, everything, making a decision and then defeating Ares, being compelled into that action. And such a sharp pivot like that really was just disappointing. Why couldn't Diana be just Diana, strong Diana? I think it's really interesting that you phrase it in terms of what Diana has, what is added to her character, perhaps taken away or altered by Steve Trevor saying, I love you, because throughout the film, she has this singular drive. She leaves her veiled island of Themyscira in pursuit of Ares, and I take that to be a very singular aim with which she is consistent throughout the film, and when they finally clash, her sword is destroyed immediately despite her perception that it was the God Slayer and Ares reveals that she is in fact the god slayer. And part of me wonders if this mythos was written in a way to let human viewers know that there may be super powerful beings out there or forces greater than you, which you cannot necessarily alter. Steve Trevor could not defeat Wonder Woman or radically change her in my interpretation, but he is able to lend her something in my reading of that moment. But I share your concern that it wasn't necessary for him to say that, and I also don't know that her defeat of Ares would have meant any less had she not heard that. I do think it gives the narrative a quote-unquote neat conclusion that she has won the day and knows that her victory means that she has saved specifically human beings who are flawed, but they also possess, exhibit, and learn from love. And I think that's what the film tries to leave us with. But I appreciate and would have appreciated the fact that sometimes good just triumphs over evil, and there may not be any profound meanings there. And I also think that line seems almost unnecessarily heroic. And I do think sometimes there are people who will save the day or the world, and we as observers may not be relevant in those conflicts or those situations. Okay, so something you said, Kip, you said, learn from love. Okay, but couldn't it have been a montage of the different types of love that she experienced, whether it be familial love, platonic love, or camaraderie, or the love she saw between parent and child as she was discovering this new world outside of the island? 
the camaraderie among the chief and Charlie and Samir and Steve, all these are forms of love. And I feel like a montage would have been far more compelling to show that this was for all of humanity and not just for Steve Trevor. And I know she wasn't just doing it for Steve Trevor and that he was symbolic, but it still rubbed me the wrong way. And speaking of rubbing, I will keep that at PG-13. But let's go back to the line about pleasure. They're in the boat together and they have a little back and forth about sleeping together in the sense of like sleeping side by side. And then we hear Wonder Woman tell Steve, very unironically and matter-of-factly, in matters of reproduction, men are necessary, but in matters of pleasure, not, or something to that effect. And that line, me and I think another person in the theater who either laughed out loud, I clapped. And I think that was one of the best lines in the movie. So at the very end, when we see the power of romantic love, I was just very confused. Did you have thoughts on that line? I absolutely appreciated that line. I think I didn't have as strong a reaction because I can't intimately identify with the insights there, but I definitely appreciated her wisdom and straightforwardness in saying it. I also think Wonder Woman stands in a very unique position where politics is very prevalent in our culture right now, in our dialogue, or perhaps the lack thereof. And a lot of male critics we read that I don't happen to agree with make an argument that director Patty Jenkins and a lot of lines like the aforementioned one are token nods to PC culture and are somewhat superficial or insincere simply for the sake of gratifying certain viewers and their political stances. But I don't know there's any way to really disinter that or prove it one way or the other. And related to that, a point on which I'd really love your input, I'm really happy that the movie is performing really well critically, but my readings continue to emphasize its role as a tentpole for future female-led superhero films. But where no male-led equivalent, impressive or terrible, The Dark Knight or Batman vs. Superman, seems to present the same gamble, I see an injustice. Because if Wonder Woman had not succeeded critically and financially, it might be the last female superhero film we might see for a while, and that really saddens me because there's a clear discrepancy there. Well, I sure hope that this isn't the last we see of Wonder Woman or the last that we see of a female lead. And I think the discussion about diversity, inclusion, representation, whether it be in comics or Hollywood, that's ongoing. And we have a lot of growing to do. But the industries are changing. And yes, Wonder Woman did supremely well at the box office. And I hope it continues to do well. But we need to bolster other narratives that aren't the standard superhero tropes, let's say. I mean, Wonder Woman premiered in 1941. It's 2017. That's 76 years. It's taken us 76 years to have a female lead. Okay, fine. But we have so many other comic book superheroes that are women or identify as women that we could be telling the stories of that are dynamic and fully fleshed out, have their own storylines, and most importantly, have intersectional identities. Whether we pull the superheroes from Saga or Bitch Planet or Faith or Miss Marvel, any and all of these I would love to see. And that they show that women as superheroes are not just it's a superhero and a woman, but it's an intersectional identity. And so we see that she's not only just a woman, she's a woman and a woman of color and how those identities intersect. She's a mother. She's a woman in a war-torn society. She's a woman who has a secret identity. She's a woman who doesn't conform to society's notions of thinness and beauty. We have so many dynamic characters in the comic book universe, and I want to see more of them. I want Wonder Woman to succeed because I wanted to open the doors for all these other diverse creators behind all these works. 
And in bringing up the political lens, I actually have a reaction I'd like to discuss to the Alamo Drafthouse circumstances surrounding their all-women showing of the film. And before listeners turn off or turn away, I'm not upset by the fact that only women were allowed in this one showing, and there were other showings of the film that were open to everyone, and I'm also okay with the fact that the proceeds went to Planned Parenthood. But what intrigues me about that choice is actually linked to Robin Wright's statement to Stephen Colbert on an interview before the film was released, when Colbert pointed out that this portrayal of Wonder Woman is going to be a great inspiration for young girls, and Robin Wright interjects, and little boys too. And I would relate that back to the Alamo Drafthouse circumstance and say that if it's an issue of physical or emotional safety, I would certainly never protest anyone's right or request to be given privacy or a form of security with those who are like them. But I would add that, at least in my ideal world, everyone is excited about various identities and gives them equal opportunities to be heard and to share their artistic and personal views of the world. And so I wish that men and those who don't identify as women were similarly encouraged to champion Wonder Woman and what she represents, at least in some idealized formats. And it is, of course, a tricky issue, and I'm not trying to cry over the fact that I, as a man, could not have gone, because that's not really my point. But I would really love to know what your take was. When you're part of a marginalized community, to have a safe space to express opinions, to experience community, that's really important. Being a woman of color myself, those spaces are critical in my own self-growth and the growth of my peers. But how do we disambiguate building community versus being exclusionary. And that's hard sometimes because sometimes you need those safe spaces in order to explore the struggles that you as a community experience that are unique to your set of people. But in the same vein, as you were saying, Kip, we are all in this together and it's going to take all our combined efforts and everyone re-examining their space and place and participation in society to be able to change the structures that create these marginalized communities. So I honestly don't know how I feel about a gender-specific viewing. Maybe if it were marketed more as geared toward women and welcoming, but not entirely exclusionary of people who don't identify as women, maybe that would have sat better. I have mixed feelings about it. And in bringing up women's experiences, we haven't yet really delved into Wonder Woman's performance of gender, which is really valuable and interesting in this film, at least from my perspective. And you and other friends, as we left the theater, made some excellent points that I would not otherwise have noticed, but I absolutely agree are essential. First of which being that all of the Amazonians are completely shaven, which is interesting. And while the film doesn't have a ton of racial diversity, on the island of Themyscira, there are women of color, which I was very grateful to see. And finally, as some of the readings we read pointed out, which to the audience listening, we will link with this episode, Wonder Woman's facial expressions often remain within a graceful or serene, but narrow spectrum where we don't see, at least facially, a ton of emotional variety that I don't think is representative of Diana's experience, or at least as I imagine her experience would be. And there's a lot there that I hope you'll help me unpack. Okay, so I take your point, and I can see where you're coming from, but why does she need to be super expressive? Because oftentimes, women are socialized to smile, to be placating, to be accommodating, 
to be sensitive, to be expressive, to be empathic, all these things, which pretty much say, okay, fine, please wear your heart on your sleeve. And women are often portrayed as such in multiple media representations. You can wear your heart on your sleeve or you cannot. And it's okay. Just as men can choose to be either emotional or not emotional, we should allow every individual to have a full spectrum of how much they want to communicate to the world. And I think part of the Wonder Woman argument of, you know, she looks very serene throughout battle scenes or in general. Okay, so she has a very measured expression throughout a lot of the movie. But we do see glimpses of emotion. And I think it's okay because I think we need to communicate to young girls that, no, you don't need to be performing a gendered identity. It's okay to be stern. It's okay to be assertive. It's okay to deal with your emotions and process them in whatever way you need to. And that doesn't need to be displayed to the world. And however you want to do it, do it. I completely agree. And another way I think she really rewrites and challenges certain norms is in her specific form of innocence, as I'm going to describe it, because she talks a lot about cowardice and what honorable fighting is. When she arrives in London, all of this set during World War I, she challenges the British generals for not being on the front lines with their men. And I think it's particularly interesting that on the island of Themyscira, this Amazonian world with only women, Their fighting is largely hand-to-hand combat or using bows and arrows, but there's a sense of honor when Diana's mother, Hippolyta, requests of her aunt, Antiope, not to teach Diana how to fight. And I find it very interesting that despite their superhuman strength, there's a reservation from fighting, which maybe isn't quite innocence, but it's less bloodthirsty than the inferno of casualties that is World War I. And so we see Diana introduced into this world, and she has a great number of criticisms about Charlie the Sniper, who, in being so far from his targets, is not fighting honorably, nor are these British generals. And finally, although the commentary wasn't overtly made, the fact that one of the main enemies in the film, in a sense, is poisonous gas that the Germans are developing to kill their enemies from a great distance and without risking German lives. And I really appreciated that Diana remains so critical of this society in which she finds herself, but she's not innocent to the point of naivete, at least in my opinion, and she is a superhero who kills, unlike Batman in the DC Universe, whose principles compel him not to. And at least from my viewpoint, she's a very nuanced character, and I look forward to seeing future narratives in her saga. And I think she captures a lot of what I've said beautifully in her final line to her mother before departing the island, when her mother requests that she not leave, and she turns to her and says, who would I be if I stay? Which is absolutely true. There's a great deal of courage in her willingness to live outside the realm of her previous existence. And in a somewhat scholarly way, she applies the wisdom and insight that she's gained up until that point to real world circumstances. And there's a great deal of admiration I have for that kind of lifestyle that she demonstrates in the latter two thirds of the film. So, about real world circumstances, we see Diana discovering this world seeing the ravages of war for the first time. And war is not glorified. We see people dying, painful deaths. We see maimed soldiers. We see generals who don't care about the deaths of their soldiers. We see villagers, refugees. War is ugly. And I don't think the movie shies away from showing that war is really ugly and makes the viewer question our country's participation in war. And for me as a viewer, that was both refreshing and painful and something that needed to be done. Because here we have Diana, who is committed to justice, 
and we are forced to question our own conceptions of war and how we participate in it. And on the note of questioning and subsequent learning, you made a really great point after we had just watched the film that altered my perception of a certain scene, that being when Diana and Steve Trevor enter the bar in London and meet some of Trevor's allies, including Samir, who, after witnessing Diana break up a bar fight, says, I'm both frightened and aroused. And my reading of that scene was rather cynical, that we didn't need to know about his arousal and that it unnecessarily sexualizes Diana. But you gave a more articulate reading of that scene. So in that scene, Samir's arousal is based on something Diana does, not something that she is. And in that respect, Diana is an agent and not an object. And I think that's so critical because being an object of the male gaze, being hypersexualized, that is the problem. But when you have a character who happens to be a woman, who happens to be doing wondrous, powerful things, and someone is aroused by you, I'm sex positive. I'm glad that we have a male character acknowledging that here's a woman who I admire because she's done something and that arouses me. And so it's not a matter of that she's just a pinup girl. She's not something that I look at and fantasize about, but never engage with. And so Diana retains her personhood. And that was refreshing. And I remain grateful for the fact that you were willing to share that perspective. Before we close this episode, what would you like the audience to think about after listening to this discussion? Like with any superhero movie, we are forced to question what we value in our heroes and what we value as a society. When Wonder Woman was created in 1941, it was a very different world. The character has grown and now her movie adaptation is bringing her to a new audience. And I want people to acknowledge that change and to understand how Wonder Woman fits into the greater fight for justice and equality, not just in the movies, but in our everyday lives. I absolutely agree. I'd be really curious to hear from male viewers of the film and those who may not identify as women what you thought about gender as it's portrayed through this film. I would also really appreciate further commentary on the courage versus cowardice narrative, at least as I perceived it throughout the film. And finally, I'd really love to know what listeners and viewers of the film think its influence will be on superhero films going forward, on female-led superhero films going forward, and perhaps even on typically male superheroes like Batman and Superman and how they might be portrayed in future cinematic releases. And Aisha, of course, I'd really like to thank you for coming on and discussing this today. It was a pleasure, Kip. Thanks for having me. I'm sorry I couldn't come in Wonder Woman attire, but next time. Well, I look forward to it. But of course, as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. So for those of you listening, if you have any thoughts, opinions, or feedback of any kind, we'd really love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to as well as sharing this show with anyone you think might also enjoy it or get something out of it. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.